The preaching of God's Word today is taken from James chapter 3 and particularly verse 13. So we began a short series on this theme of biblical wisdom last week and discussed how the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now we wish to take some time to take up this portion of James chapter 3 verses 13 through the end of the chapter and today focusing our attention on verse 13 itself. So as we've read the whole chapter already here again, verse 13 of James chapter 3. Who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? Let him show out of a good conversation his works with meekness of wisdom. Verse is revisiting a theme in this epistle that has already been introduced. In the first chapter, James has told us that if we lack wisdom, we're to ask of God. And he's introduced other thoughts of wisdom as well, and he returns to it. And notice the context is this warning, this very clear statement. Verse 1, be not many masters or teachers. This is rather intriguing for our own day because there are some tendencies that men and women think that everyone is qualified and should have a platform to teach others, not just in the common ways that the Lord tells us to teach others, but to have an elevated platform to reach out to all sorts of people. And so everyone is deemed an author and to some extent a preacher and other such things. And they do this Primarily today, it seems through social media, but of course, this is somewhat of the American dream that everyone should be their own teacher. Here, notice the apostolic, the biblical and God-given warning, be not many masters. There is a warning against that. And notice the reason is that those who take upon themselves such a work shall receive the greater condemnation, the greater judgment. Their platform is such that they're necessarily influencing others. They're an instrument. They aren't the cause, but they are an instrument of either helping or hurting others. And you'll notice in verse 2, there's likewise this statement, for in many things, notice that James doesn't say you, He says, we offend all. He's mindful that even he likewise is guilty of sin. But that does include us. And he isolates his focus upon our spoken word. Now, what's intriguing is that he doesn't say, for in many things we are ignorant. That's true, we are ignorant of many things. But in his warning against becoming masters, his warning against setting ourselves up as so many independent popes, his warning is actually focused upon our speech. That there is a great concern in the presence of God that our speech be pure, holy, good, and wise. And so he launches into this discussion about though the tongue is little, Look how other little things can bring forth great consequences. And you'll notice then he comes to the section 
that begins with verse 13. Who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? Now, brethren, here's the relationship. Typically, the person who feels they've attained to a degree of knowledge that outdoes others now feels themselves to be in a position to start launching on their own teaching. And so they've gained knowledge. They think, now I'm going to teach others. I've been taught, I'll teach others. I have greater knowledge. They have ignorance, so I'm going to speak, and so on. Now, certainly, the Christian body is to be about edifying one another, speaking words, and so on, instructing others. Older women are to teach younger women. And there's all manner of uh, invested uh, love to one another through instruction. But you'll notice that James, though acknowledging the importance of knowledge and what some would call wisdom, he actually then warns and exhorts under focus. He says, let him show, let him display, let him manifest that knowledge and wisdom out of a good conversation. Now that could be in our day a misleading word. Because we might think he's still talking about the realm of speech. But the Greek word is talking about that habit of life, that turning again of our life over and over again, the constant actions of our lives. And so what he's saying is let him show his being endued with wisdom and knowledge by his good conduct, by his activity, by his life, his works. So his works are to be the grand display that he has learned. His works are to be the preeminent display that he is wise. Not his words first, but his works. You can see this actually in the life of Ezra. Lord willing, we'll get to this in due time. But if you look at that section where Ezra is first fully introduced, Ezra chapter 7... Notice how Ezra, who is to be a teacher to Israel, is mentioned here, verse 10, as first, it says, Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord. And so he gave himself to the diligent study of God's revelation, particularly of his law. But notice, secondly, as he attained greater knowledge, what did he do? He then did it. He prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it. And then only after his life was brought into conformity, increasingly so, did he then teach in Israel statutes and judgments. It's a biblical pattern. Amazingly, this is likewise the pattern of our incarnate Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is wisdom And yet he gave himself to the growing and the knowledge of the revealed truth. What a wonder, what a mystery we cannot fully fathom. The wise governor of all things incarnate and now in his human uh, nature learning these things as well. Oh, it boggles our mind. And yet he grew in favor with God and with man. And we see his life showing forth the beauty of these things And then he's brought forth upon his public ministry. This pattern is thoroughly biblical. James is setting it before us. But 
You'll also notice in the text that as he shows his works with his good conduct, it is accompanied with, perhaps it is best to see it as, in the Greek, displayed by the meekness of wisdom. That word meekness is a word that has to do with gentleness or mildness. Now, brethren, we struggle with this because we become convinced that so soon as we gain a very clear understanding of God's word on some point, particularly a point that is neglected by many, that we're going to fight tooth and nail to defend it. And we ought to fight tooth and nail to defend it. But the fighting of tooth and nail to defend it in God's kingdom looks differently than the way that the world defends its error. The way that we diligently strive to convey, to defend, to promote, and advance biblical wisdom and understanding is with mildness. It is with gentleness. This doesn't mean with compromise. It doesn't mean with this sort of flip-flopping back and forth, waffling all over the place. But it does mean that our souls are so established in the grace of God that even in the face of those who are in error, we're still gentle. This is precisely how Christ is to us. He comes at times with the firmness of reproof, but brethren, his reproof is always governed by love. And his gentleness to us is one of the things we preeminently rejoice. And we sang of this in Psalm 45, for meekness, truth, and right, right prosperously in state. They're joined together. We love to divide things like meekness and righteousness. And we sort of think of it almost as a continuum that one's either more on the meek side, the mild side, the, 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 the gentle side, or one's more on the righteous side, and so on. But we see in Christ the perfect harmony of these things. And so we see it in this passage before us. What we want to focus on this evening is this truth that where true biblical wisdom is, where true growth of knowledge is, it will always be accompanied with, it will always be displayed by meekness, a meek and holy life to the glory of God. So consider three things. Firstly, the nature of wisdom, which will be briefer on because we touched on this last week. The nature of meekness. And then thirdly, the relationship between the two, wisdom and meekness. As to the first, the nature of wisdom, we saw this last week, it is first to emphasize this point, it is a gift from the Lord. Though we find that there's to be diligence in pursuing it, and so we're, as we saw last week, with all of our getting, we are to get wisdom. What an amazing statement that is. What do you do when you have 10 minutes extra? You know what the majority of the world right now does? They can't stand to do otherwise. They reach in their pocket, they pull out their phone, and they start that incessant sliding up and down on their phones. They look at this. What's going on in the news? What's going on in this feed? What's going on here? Oh, I wonder what the news is there. I wonder what the weather is here. What's the weather in San Diego? What's the weather in Nepal? 
all of these things that flood our mind. But brethren, think of this for a moment. None of that, in the least, is contributing to your advance in wisdom. When you're doing that, we need to drill this in our mind. What we aren't doing is with all of our getting, getting wisdom. It is something that is incumbent on us as the Lord's people, that we order our lives, not just certain moments, but our lives to be those which are seeking wisdom. And as we affirm this, we have to remember that with all of our getting as we're pursuing to get wisdom, that we're pursuing it from the Lord. We're to be seeking it from him. It's James himself that says in 1 and verse 5, If any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and upbraideth not. Proverbs 2 and verse 6, It's the Lord that giveth wisdom. We have no hesitation in acknowledging these things. And yet we must see that gift doesn't mean idleness. Gift doesn't mean we sit back and sort of hands off, sit back unconcerned. It's the same thing when God promises things. Think about Christ promises uh, various things. And yet he says we're to ask and we're to seek and we're to knock. There's to be a diligence in seeking the things which God holds forth freely to us. There's a number of reasons for this. One is it demonstrates the sincerity of the desire. We truly want it. We're coming with sincerity. I've heard the story before of a Southern Presbyterian who was sitting in his study in the hours of the day and there's a knock on his study door and a young man came and said to the man, the minister, I'm a bit concerned about my soul. You know, I'd, I'd like to know what word you would have for me from God that I might be saved. And the minister, wise and uh, experienced, didn't lift his eyes. And he said, well, you know enough, don't you? You know, come back after you've given it further thought. The pastor had wisdom on his side, knowing what was going on. He was testing the man. And the young man stood there, stepped forward with great earnestness and said, you don't understand. My soul is in the throes of of death. I must, I must know how to be saved. It's that display then that captures the earnestness. And this is why the Lord will have us earnestly to seek it. In some sense, the Lord is testing us. I hear that you say you want wisdom. Well, is it real? It's not that he has to discover it, But it's that we are determining, we're discovering this desire. It's a gift from the Lord, and yet it's pursued diligently that we're to ask Him, that we're to seek it from Him at His mouth, His Word, that we're to hide it in our hearts, that we would not sin against the Lord, that we frequent the public gatherings to hear the proclamation of God's Word, that we spend time with brethren as iron sharpens iron. Brethren, let's be clear about that passage. That's not saying One disagreement sharpens another disagreement. That's how some Christians talk about that. Well, you know, you have this view of that. I have the other view of that. We disagree. Let's sharpen one another. That's not sharpening one another. Sharpening is the helpful discussion together between those who are agreed on a thing as they're furthering their mutual understanding in the things 
of God. It's not the combative disagreement. It's the helping one another in the things of the Lord. It's a gift from the Lord, which we seek diligently. But particularly wisdom, though it is a gift and though it is sought diligently, is particularly focused upon the application of divine truth to life. Notice in verse 13, our verse, who is wise, who's endued with knowledge, let him show out of a good conversation. Mentioned the Greek word has to do with turning over or returning. It has the idea of what's the constancy of our lives. The whole of our lives is to be showing this forth. What's being said, our lives, our living is to display wisdom. In some sense, not the full testimony of what this means, but in some sense, men should be able to look at you and say, there is a wise man. There is a wise woman. How could they say that? Because they can see the choices being made. They can see the way that life is being lived. They can see not the self-proclamation of learn from me, but they can hear the words that are being spoken and say that man, that woman is a wise man, is a wise woman. The conduct of the life is being brought into conformity with the teaching of God's word. This is why, for instance, you see this so frequently in Psalm 119, this relationship between God's word and one's life. Notice in Psalm 119 and at verse 97, Oh, how love I thy law! It is my meditation all the day. Thou, through thy commandments, hast made me wiser than mine enemies, for they are ever with me. Notice, it's essentially what we've already said, isn't it? It's a gift from God. Thou, as it says, through thy commandments, there's the means being used, hast made me wiser than mine enemies. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for thy testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the ancients, because I keep thy precepts. I've refrained my feet from every evil way that I might keep thy word. What's the point? God is forming this person according to the instruction of his word, particularly his commandments, his precepts, his testimonies, his law. Thus, as the life is brought into conformity of God's revealed will, there is the conforming of oneself to the love of God and to the love of one's neighbor. And so they're being guided not only by this specific commandment, but as that commandment guides us in what it is to love God and what it is to love our neighbor. Because there's no disagreement between the two. The commandment is the concrete articulation of what it looks like to love God. It is the concrete articulation of what it looks like to love our neighbor. And so as the soul is brought under being instructed, it's not just being instructed, you understand, to be able to identify the definitions. That's where not just the world and not just the other churches, that's where we have struggles. We read a great book, 
we understand a new passage of scripture, we have it meditated on for some time, and we start to gain the intellectual understanding. And we're tempted to think, now I've got it. But biblical wisdom realizes that's just part of the whole process. We have to be taught. Our minds have to understand. We seek understanding from God. But biblical wisdom is not being able to regurgitate doctrines, commandments, practices, and so on with our mouths. Biblical wisdom is the life transformed so now our lives are conformed to God's word and we're able to discern what's right, what's wrong in this circumstance, in that circumstance, in this case, in the case that surrounds me. And moreover, it's guiding us in the love of God and the love of our neighbor. In other words, it's not a legalistic thing in the least. It is rather a robust display of love to God and love to our neighbor. This is important because of a number of ways that not only James, but Paul and others apply the idea of wisdom. That it is, just as a foreshadow, consider where it says in verse 14, If you have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not, boast not, lie not against the truth. This wisdom, that is, this pretended wisdom that you think you have, descends not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. What's he saying? When you're more interested in winning the argument, when you're more interested in putting one in their place, when you're more interested in the strife and envying, that's not wisdom. You might have a sight of truth on your, uh, uh, in your mind, but you aren't functioning as a wise person. Because a wise person knows God, knows the law of God, and you remember, the law of God teaches us to love God and to love our neighbor, not to look upon them as an argument to be won, but as if a brother or sister, even in error, a brother or sister to be helped. And the posture of helping someone is far different than the posture of winning with someone. That's what James is concerned about, as we'll see. And so when we see it's the application of divine truth to our lives, what we see is it's an aspect of sanctification. It's a part of God sanctifying us, making us more like unto himself. And we have beautiful images of this in the Lord Jesus Christ, as we'll see. So the nature of wisdom, consider then the nature of meekness. What is meekness? It's a word here and in other forms as well that has to do with Gentleness. You'll actually see something of that in verse 17. The wisdom that is from above is first pure, then there's these, ling- these words, peaceable, gentle, easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality or wrangling as the margin notes, and without hypocrisy. Those words are all related to this idea of meekness. It has a gentle, kind, noble disposition. Think of how it's said of Christ Jesus in Matthew 11. Oh, we love and we often can call to mind verse 28. It's a beautiful testimony of the Lord. Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
Sometimes we might think that that's where the passage stops. Notice what he says is further encouragement. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. And hear how Christ characterizes himself. He says, for I am meek and lowly in heart. And you shall find rest for your souls. He characterizes himself as meek and lowly. And brethren, as a Christian, you have experienced this. It's shameful at times when I reflect upon how I come to others, whether children or others, to correct them. And I think for a moment, when have I ever seen Christ correct me that way? With the furrowed brow and the boisterous arguing and so on, Christ comes firmly. He comes clearly. But he always comes lovingly. He is such as will not quench a smoking flax. He is not one to break a bruised reed. He is one to care and tenderly help them. We might think, but wait, you know, sin needs to be dealt with seriously. Well, he's not saying I'm meek, therefore I'm not serious. He's meek in his seriousness. He's gentle while yet firm and clear. These aren't antitheses. They aren't opposites. One can be tremendously firm, clear, faithful, without compromise, and thoroughly meek. This is what we see in Christ. And brethren, he's doing this all the time with his ignorant, with his stumbling, with his hesitating, and even with his sinning people. See it not only in his earthly ministry, But you can see this if you were to read Revelation 2 and 3 as he's reproving his people. He's always coming as well with these generous promises and helps and encouragements along the way. Notice how Paul picks up on this very theme in 2 Corinthians and chapter 10. He says there at verse 1, I, Paul, myself beseech you by the meekness of and gentleness of Christ, who in presence and base among you, but being absent and bold toward you. He's coming, reproving, correcting, and so on, but he's pointing as he's doing so, consider the meekness and gentleness of Christ Jesus. Brethren, in parenting, in marriage, in pastoring, in Christian fellowship, We have need to have much of our thoughts and our hearts upon this truth. The king of the church is meek and gentle. His kingdom is thus to be meek and gentle. And if we entertain thoughts, well, you can't be holy and be meek and gentle at the same time. We have misunderstood the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a beautiful passage in 1 Peter chapter 3 and there at verse 4. It's speaking particularly of women. There's a helpful treatise, little book on this by Matthew Henry that speaks of this meek and quiet spirit. 
Notice verse 4 of 1 Peter 3, Let it be the hidden man of the heart, in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. Though it's true in context, it's speaking of women. Yet notice, the meek and quiet spirit is in God's sight of great value. And so this meekness is something that is similar to humility. There can be a distinction about them, but there's a relationship doubtlessly. And so in other words, meekness is then contrary to pride. And you see that in the text before us in James chapter 3, as we'll get to the Lord willing in due time, when he speaks of the envying and strife, which is contrary to the fruit of meekness, he speaks of the bitter envying and strife in your hearts, which is contrary to the true meekness of wisdom. Proverbs 11.2 says, When pride cometh, then cometh shame, but with the lowly is wisdom. Better it is, Proverbs 16.19, to be of an humble spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud. It is a twin grace to humility, and it is contrary to all pride. Brethren, it is a personal struggle, which doubtlessly, to some extent, is a struggle for everyone who comes to the discovery of truth. Try as we might, we come to the discovery of truth, and implicit in our remaining sin is the elevation of our stature in the presence of others. This is something we have to consciously fight against, deliberately, explicitly reject. When we learn a truth, whatever it is, of doctrine, of practice, of church government, of principles of worship, and we see this is rejected by many. It may not be many way down the road. It may be some near unto us, we have to cultivate consciously, deliberately, by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the same meekness that characterizes Christ himself. This doesn't mean we're just going to flip-flop, but it does mean we're going to be gentle. It does mean we're going to ensure that we have a loving disposition and a kind disposition as we seek to share the truth. But brethren, remember, this meekness of wisdom is first to be displayed in our lives. Wisdom and meekness together, which are a combined couplet, is to govern our lives. Our lives are to be transformed. This nature of meekness is not just a cultivated manner of speech, It's not just the studying ourselves in the mirror and saying, do I have the right sort of appearance on my face? It's actually a whole life that is to be meek. It's a whole approach that is to be gentle. It's amazing how Christ dealt with people. Who is it that he was strongly opposed against? It was those who were iron-fisted in their legalism. 
the Pharisees. It was those who were straining at gnats to swallow a camel. It was those who were blind leaders of the blind. But brethren, it's astounding how he deals with sinners. It's astounding how he deals with the woman caught in adultery. It's astounding how he deals with Peter who denies him with blasphemy. In Luke's gospel, if God spares us and we come to this passage, how can one preach on that word when Peter denies him the third time with cursing and Christ already bloodied, already uh, uh, beaten, already falsely accused, on his way to further judgment? He knows that his disciple, whom he loves, whom he's called, whom he'll restore in time to come, has just engaged in blasphemy. And Luke records that as he's passing from one building to the other, Christ's eyes caught Peter's. How do we begin to understand the meekness of Christ? I wonder if our eyes had caught Peter's. What would our faces have looked like? If after the resurrection, it was our opportunity to deal with Peter, how would we have dealt with Peter? And yet, oh, though Christ comes clearly to call out his sin, and he comes clearly, gently, faithfully, lovingly to do so, restoring him. Lovest thou me? Feed my lambs. Lovest thou me? Feed my sheep. Lovest thou me? Feed my sheep. He's gentle in his whole approach, even to errant disciples. Doesn't mean he passes by and neglects their problems, but his approach is one of gentleness, firmness, but gentle. Notice, furthermore, that meekness is a grace. It is that which the Lord provides. And this is obvious because it is intimately associated with wisdom. In Galatians chapter 5, you'll notice after speaking of the uh, works of the flesh, there's then the fruit of the Spirit. Verse 22, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance against such There is no law. This is the fruit of the Spirit. It's not the fruit of your virtue. It's not the fruit of your superiority. It's the fruit of the Lord's work in us by His Spirit. Which, by the way, brethren, gives us tremendous help because if you're at all a student of your heart, you'll likely come to this conclusion. You are far from being the meek disciple you ought to be. You are far from being the meek husband, the meek father, the meek wife, the meek mother, the meek professing Christian that you and I ought to be. It's astounding how we often feel ourselves of having attained a certain degree of this and then someone crosses us and what happens? We throw meekness away and now we're chest to chest and we're ready to go toe to toe and let our voice rise. Right? The point is there is the need to cultivate this meekness by the Spirit of God. It's the Spirit who gives it. It's beyond your ability. It's beyond any human ability to cultivate this true meekness of wisdom. 
But it's not beyond the Spirit. The Spirit is able to create within us the sincere love, the sincere gentleness, the sincere meekness that is likewise faithful in every precept of God's law. What man can't do, and this is part of the issue, the world says it's either or. That's because the world is forced to choose one or the other. They're either going to be rigid and outwardly, as it were, uh, rigorous in their obedience and diligence, or they're going to be lax and mild. That can be done by humankind. You can say, you know what, I've seen austerity, I don't want it. I'm going to be very gentle. And by that we mean, I'm going to be not too concerned about sin. I'm just going to let it slide. You know, I'm not going to be like calling it out. And I don't want to do that because I've seen people do it. And they're always, you know, fisted and white knuckling and everything else. It's horrible. Or you can say, I know what it is to live around and even be one who doesn't care about God's law. I'm not going to be that way. And so we become rigid and overbearing and heavy handed. Brethren, that's what flesh can do. But the Spirit of God is able to bring both of these together so that with uncompromising faithfulness, we walk in the precepts of God's law while we are magnifying the glory of God with a meek, humble, gentle, and kind disposition, which is the product, the fruit of the Holy Spirit. You can see elsewhere as well these very truths, but let's move now to the relationship between wisdom and meekness. Notice that James presents them as in an essential relationship. That is, they cannot be separated. This is why he says, as we'll consider, that if you're wise and endued with knowledge, you'll show it. It will appear. How will it appear? In all the books that you write, in all the blog articles that you post, in all of the social media things that you're involved in, in all the forums that you're a member of, in all of the victories you have in conversations. He says, by no means. That's not how the knowledgeable and the wise one will show it. He'll show it of necessity out of his life, his works with meekness of wisdom. They are necessarily brought together. They are combined. There's an essential relationship between the two of them. Doubtlessly, a reason is, as we grow in our wisdom, knowing God's holy law, do we not necessarily know something of our own imperfections and sins which humble us? Do we not know something as well of the grace of God who's been gentle toward us, though he's brought at times the rod against us, yet even that was wielded with a hand of love, that those whom he loves, he chastens. He never does so, as it were, in the bitterness of anger to his children, but he does so with the compassion and love of a faithful father. We know something of this meekness in the Lord. We see the seriousness with which our Savior has taught it. We see His life which is flawless. And yet we also see that drawing of compassion 
that he magnifies in himself. He seeks out Zacchaeus. And brethren, in that we see something, don't we? How he sought us out as well. He forgives those who come and confess. And we see, don't we, how he forgives us as we come and confess. We see how he long-sufferingly endures. Oh, brethren, how many years of our lives We can see this in things that we already know about. A principle is discovered. A practice is discerned from the Lord's word. And we realize that for a decade, for two decades, for three decades of our professed Christian life, we've been living in direct disobedience to God. And yet we can look back at those 10, 20, 30 years and say, the Lord has been rich in kindness to me. And even when he brought me to understand this, oh, the gentleness, the kindness with which he handled these things and handled me. It's because of that, learning from him who is wise, who is meek, that we see the relationship between wisdom and meekness as well. But you'll also notice that it is to be discerned as a purposed relationship. The way that James expresses it, let him show, gives the idea of deliberation. Let it come out. Let it be displayed. You have to engage your mind on this. By God's grace, you need to incline your heart regarding this. You have to be purposed and deliberate in this, in the letting of it show, which demands, of course, that we come under this wise teaching. If you go through Proverbs, it's amazing how frequently these notions of gentleness, meekness, kindness, with faithfulness, with diligence, and all these things are brought together. And what we start to see is it's clear in the scriptures. You look at Christ, you say it's clear in Christ. You look at Paul, you say it's clear in Paul. Brethren, this is one of the eminent ways in which ministers are to be qualified for their office. Notice pastors, their qualification in 1 Timothy chapter 3. They are, in verse 2, to be the husband, blameless husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach. Notice, not given to wine, no striker, not not greedy, a filthy luger, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous. Notice that, no striker, not a brawler. He's not going toe-to-toe. He's not looking for this thing and that thing. This is what happens in churches sometimes. There's, seen it myself, there are men that I know that have faced it as well. A young man at a conference once, not any time recent, he was, as it were, just always looking for the doctrinal fight. He's always coming to this man, this minister. What do you think about this? Oh, you think that? Well, let me tell you why that's wrong. I've studied and I've read all of these things. And leave it to people to say, as they come up to other ministers, say, hey, have you considered so-and-so for the ministry? He shows zeal for the word of God. Well, he may show zeal for something, but he shows no biblical wisdom. He's seeking out fights all the time. Far from being qualified for the ministry, he is unqualified for the ministry. He must be one, yes, who is clear and determined and apt to teach. 
But he must be no brawler, no striker. He must be a humble man. He must be a gentle man. This is necessary, but it's not just in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Notice in 2 Timothy and chapter 2. Paul says in verse 22, follow also, or Flee also youthful lusts, but follow righteousness, faith, charity, peace with them that call on the Lord out of a pure heart. But foolish and unlearned questions avoid, knowing that they do gender strifes. They give birth to strifes. And notice what Paul says, the servant of the Lord must not strive but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient, in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves, if God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. We think we need the doctrinal warrior to be the one who goes forth and he takes no prisoners. He doesn't care a hoot about the person in front of him. Paul says, no, we need the doctrinally sound, but we need the doctrinally sound who is one that will not strive, but will be gentle, not just to some, but to all. And even to those that oppose themselves, he's gentle to them. In meekness, he's instructing those that oppose. And you say, but wait, we need someone to convert them. We need someone to correct them. And we say, amen, we do. It's not the minister. If God peradventure will give them repentance, the minister is just the servant, just the instrument. He comes presenting the truth, pleading the truth, admonishing, rebuking, warning, instructing, teaching, exhorting. But he does so realizing that he is fully dependent upon the Lord God to give repentance. Your strength of insight will do nothing to move anyone from the point of the grossest to the smallest air unto truth. You're presenting your arguments time and again to your husband, time and again to your wife, time and again to your children, time and again to others. We'll do nothing to move the needle if God doesn't bless it. You don't have to work yourself up into a frenzy. What you have to do, even as ministers have to do, is with patience, determination, with love and gentleness to hold fast to the truth And to present the truth earnestly, instructing as God might grant repentance. It's worth seeing as we come up to our applications that Paul doesn't leave this in Titus either. But in verse 7, chapter 1, a bishop, an overseer, must be blameless as the steward of God, not self-willed, not soon angry, not given to wine, no striker, not given to filthy lucre, and so on. Point is, in all three pastoral epistles, this theme comes up. It is a requirement that it would be, by way of eminence, evident in elders and pastors. Brethren, what is to be by way of eminence in them is nonetheless to be in existence among all. All of us are to be meek. All of us 
have access to the same Savior who was meek to us and is meek to us. And all of us have a responsibility to instruct others in one way or another, though not being a formal master or teacher, yet all of us have degrees of authority with which we serve others, and thus all of us must cultivate this purposed relationship. Now as we close, there's something that each of us needs to examine in ourselves. Parents have a particular need to do so, but husbands have a particular need to do so as well, as these are authoritative positions by which they're vested with authority to teach others, to lead others. But every Christian needs to consider this. Children need to consider this. Our congregation needs to consider this because we don't mean in any way boasting. But in the Lord's mercies, this congregation has been privileged with great insight into the principles and teaching of God's word. And the inherent danger, if it's left unaddressed, is that we'll be puffed up. Knowledge puffeth up, Paul warns. But charity edifies. To do that, to build up, we have to get low. If we're going to be building others up, we don't get up and pull them up. We get down and help them up. That's the idea of edifying. Christ in its shout from heaven, hey everyone, get your act together and you'll make it up to heaven. He came down. He girds himself in the habit of a servant in the incarnation and literally when he washes the disciples' feet and preeminently when he's there naked, shamed, beaten, hanged upon the cross, crucified, bearing the wrath of God. Oh, as our brother prayed, that he suffered damnation for us. And brethren, as he did so, he did so most lovingly toward us. He didn't do so with resentment toward us, but with lowliness of heart. He esteemed us great in his eyes. As Paul says, likewise are we to have the same mind which was in Christ Jesus. Brethren, we must examine and be purposed in ourselves, not just to ask, have I attained certain levels of knowledge, instruction, doctrine, practice, worship? But is my life being transformed so that I don't only look back and say, look at all the doctrines I now have in my arsenal, but can I actually look back and say, look how the Lord has brought me to be gentle, kind, and meek. That'll be the display of wisdom. It's an understood thing that men do. In their offices, whether at home or at work, they display their different credentials. You know, they'll have their diplomas, this, that, and the other, their high school, their college, undergraduate, their seminary, postgraduate, and other such things. They have these up there. Well, okay, we're not saying that that's wrong. But brethren... What we should be focused on is not the credentials on our wall, the books of our library. What we should be focused on to measure this is, am I more patient toward men? Are my words spoken clearer, as it were, more in agreement with truth, more searching, but are they sincerely spoken to help? Do they have the culture, the context, the, as it were, the expression of love and gentleness, even when the hardest things are being stated. People love to demonize John Calvin. And he himself said he struggled with the bitter spirit. 
But brethren, would that we had the bitter spirit of John Calvin who wept as he walked next to Servetus, who wept pouring out tears, pleading with that man, in earnest, desiring, solemnly, lovingly, gently, wisely, that Servetus would repent of his Trinitarian heresies. He didn't sit back and say, hey, Beza, you know what I did? I told him this, you know, and hey, let me write to, you know, the English reformers and say, yeah, he was saying all these stupid things and he doesn't understand what he's talking about. And this is what I told him. And now he's going to be put to death by the state. He didn't do any of that. But I fear what we think Calvin would have done if he lived in the era of social media. We would just sort of put all these things out there and demonize Servetus in the way that is contrary to God's word instead of merely showing the heresy, reproving the heresy, condemning the heresy, and yet thoroughly doing so in a way that displayed love. And brethren, let us not hide behind. Well, I do love. I love God. Brethren, we love God. We'll also show that love. We'll also be gentle as Christ is gentle. We need to examine ourselves in this earnestly. This is no call to compromise the slightest part of truth, doctrine, practice, worship, etc. It is the biblical call that we show that we know those things through the meekness of wisdom in a life lived according to God's word. And finally, let us do so cultivating it by spending more time in the conscious presence of Christ Jesus who is meek and lowly in heart. He doesn't say, listen, I'm meek and lowly in heart, do whatever you want. He says, come to me, take my yoke upon you, learn of me, for I'm meek and lowly of heart. He doesn't compromise, and yet he's meek and lowly in heart. He doesn't capitulate, and yet he's meek and lowly in heart. If you and I are going to learn to hold to the clear teaching of God's law, the clear teaching of his doctrine, the clear teaching of his principles, and to do so in this meekness of wisdom, it will be as we're transformed with and by the yoke, which is yoked unto Christ, and by him we communicated this biblical wisdom which displays itself in the meekness of wisdom in a life honoring the Lord. Would you stand with me for prayer?